Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Today my guest is someone who's not only a teacher and developer in the field of neurolinguistics, but is someone who's been a leading voice and a creator of new approaches and procedures in NLP for over 30 years. He's an accomplished hypnotist, and having studied many different approaches to using this skill, he helps many individuals to make personal changes in the context of coaching, facilitation and training, focusing on creating change at an instinctive and unconscious level. I'm joined today, of course, by uh, Michael Perez. Welcome, Michael. It's great to be here. Um, it would be really great just to start out by um, maybe telling our listeners uh, a little bit about you, what you do, and, and how you got started. Sure. Well, you know, um, I started out in um, kind of like the IT world. That's, uh, that's, that's where my initial interests were. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, one of the things that's often true in that part of the world is that uh, very often people in that field... Uh, might be great with computers and not necessarily great communicators or great with people. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was it. I, I originally started learning NLP in the context of teaching communications uh, and communication skills to IT people. Um, I, I noticed that as I taught you know, uh, kind of applications of NLP in the context of, of uh, helping people to become better communicators, I noticed that their personal lives started to change in ways um, that were just, you know, kind of ramifications of some of the things that I taught them uh, in, in the classroom. And so I became uh, intensely interested in the therapeutic uh, aspects of NLP. And, uh, and then uh, after using that for a number of years, um, I started to run into kind of the uh, what I might describe as, as kind of the edge cases, where a lot of the things that I learned in NLP were not necessarily immediately applicable. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, that's when I started to change my focus more towards hypnosis, and specifically more towards the hypnosis of uh, uh, Dr. Milton H. Erickson, who was a very, uh, probably the greatest, um, arguably, but uh, probably, the, the, in my opinion, certainly, um, the greatest hypnotist of the 20th century. Mm. Because he was able 
to do things that um, I I did not see happening outside of you know with other therapists nearly as much and and so I spent about five years studying him. Um, that was a, a deeply transformative experience, uh, you know, getting a chance to to go through uh, films and recordings and so on and so forth. And then finally, um, after uh, uh, after that, uh, the real, you know, starting in the very late 90s, uh, there was an absolute revolution uh, in neuroscience because suddenly um, modern brain scanning equipment became available. And the moment that that happened, the moment that, uh, that suddenly we had uh, modern brain scanners, we could watch a brain work. Because previously, all of our understanding of brains had mostly come from damaged brains. And uh, now we could watch healthy brains function. And that technology has gone from being very primitive to being much better. Um, of course, that, that process is still continuing. But as a result, we've had absolutely everything that we thought about the brain as of, let's say, 1990 has pretty much been upended by now mm-hmm. and cert- and certainly we're learning a lot more now the thing is is that uh, although although that's interesting in terms of trivia you know because i just like to know how things works that's fun but i think that the more that we understand about how things might function the more that that suggests uh some things that we might do as a result and uh, and so you know uh, taking on board some of the uh some of the things that cognitive uh neuroscience has started to to show us and transforming that into interventions and practice or using at least that information to inform Mm -hmm. interventions and practice. And then, you know, testing the result, you know, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But, uh, but that again has been, been a real, you know, turning point in, in my career. And, and that's kind of brought me to, to now, Um, you know, certainly that's the last 15 years of it. And, and here we are. Great. Great, and and, and I'm, I'm really curious because there's this idea that you're creating change at an instinctive and an unconscious level. Yes. Um, could you explain that a little bit more to, to people that might be interested in learning what, what is an instinctive change or an unconscious change? Sure. Well, uh, the one thing that we can say and, and, and is that there is a mass of evidence building to suggest that actually when you and I do stuff – um, we have a, f- a feeling like there is a thing we can refer to as consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I usually like to refer to it as awareness because I think it's more accurate given what we're learning. Uh, but, uh, but essentially what, what happens is, is that we, we feel like consciousness is responsible uh, for what we do. So, for example, um, if I'm going to pick up uh, my, my phone, for example, um, I would uh, think to myself uh, that I want to pick up the phone. I would pick up the phone and I would think of that as being a conscious action. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, of course, um, the reality is that um, the, the process of picking up the phone um, and even the decision to pick up the phone seems to be happening a long time before, at least long, a long time in terms of neurological uh, chronology, it seems to be happening a long time before we are aware um, of making, you know, quote, a decision, unquote. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so what this suggests is, is that basically we 
Um, you know, because the old the old point of view, if you go back, um, you, you can do this with uh, Freud, um, but you can go all the way back to Aristotle. And Aristotle, um, he used to use the metaphor of a person being a bit like a chariot, a charioteer and his chariot and the horse. Um, so the thing is, is that the, we have um, the will, the volition of the person is the charioteer. Mm-hmm. And then we have the impulses, the emotions, the drives, uh, which are as essentially the horse and the chariot. And so uh, the charioteer has to wrestle and control the horse and train the horse so that the horse obeys, um, you know, the charioteer. Mm. Okay, so that was that, you know, and, and basically Freud. Uh, now, when he did it, he he changed it a little bit because he said it was a it was a bit more like a man. Uh, riding a donkey cart. <laughs> and so the man is what Freud would refer to as the conscious mind, and the donkey and the donkey cart were what he would refer to as, in his words, the subconscious mind. Mm-hmm. Now, um, and of course, in Freud's cosmology, it, it, first off, you know, it's, it's, it's to be lauded that he understood that there, that there were things that were coming from outside of consciousness, just as Aristotle understood it. But essentially, uh, the the real kind of problem there is that Freud felt that um, that the good you, the real you, the person that that essentially you are and should be, is uh, is your conscious uh, mind, and the unconscious bit of your brain um, is kind of a cesspool of of repressed evil. Yeah. So it's all the stuff about sex, and then eventually death. Jung talked him into including death as well as sex. And, uh, and so this is all, you know, of course, sex is bad and wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so um, the end result is that all, all the stuff that you push down um, is the unconscious mind. And then, of course, all the, all the good virtue and will and wisdom is the conscious mind. Mm. Um, but, uh, but essentially what we've been learning is, is that it uh, turns out most of us seems to be unconscious and uh, it seems that awareness um, includes a certain awareness of what's going on in our minds, uh, but not uh, really complete. And there's an illusion that this awareness is responsible for the things that we do, um, even though, in fact, uh, that doesn't seem to be true. Now, I'll, I'll give you uh, the classic example. Uh, everyone who has ever spoken... Um, if we ask them, uh, is your speech conscious? So, in other words, are you, are you are you making a conscious decision to speak, and and the things you say are they are they conscious things? And I think that most of us, on you know, just at first glance, would say yes, of course. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, speaking is a conscious action. Yeah. You know, otherwise it would be like some sort of I don't know, like some kind of a you know, if you're in a trance and weird words are coming out, that would be something else. Uh, but that's not what's happening when we speak. But I would, I would suggest rather that it is. Let me give you one example. Mm. When, whenever, because for example, I'm talking right now and I can ask myself this question. Where in consciousness am I creating the language that I'm speaking? Where, where am I parsing the sentence? Where am I determining what, what, what's the noun? What's the verb? What's the adverb? What's the adjective? What's the sentence structure? You know, and, and of course, that's, uh, that's the thing, is that um, speech, it turns out, is unconscious. 
And most of what we say, I mean, we may have a vague idea of what we want to say in advance and have an awareness of that idea. But speech actually comes from outside of consciousness. And our awareness of what we are saying usually happens in in terms of, of the exact language tends to happen as we speak. Yeah. You know, and, and so uh, speech is an example of a perfectly conscious behavior that actually turns out to be quite unconscious. <laughs> there are, you know, uh, um, there's a really good, it's a bit of an older book now, but it still has a lot of great points in it. It's by V.S. Ramachandran. It's called uh, Phantoms in the Brain. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of experiments that you can do there, which uh, in order to reveal what he refers to as the zombie. Uh, because essentially, uh, he does a lot of stuff where he demonstrates that even though you think you have quote conscious unquote control of your, of your hands and your motor function, he demonstrates some ways in which, um, our cognitive awareness, our, our consciousness can be fooled by certain illusions. And yet when your body interacts with them, your body is not fooled. And so what's really interesting about that is this demonstrates that the, the stuff, you know, the part of your brain that's moving your body around is, uh, is using pre-conscious information that isn't subject to the flaw that causes the, the uh, illusion to work. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, you know, you're actually acting on more information than you know you have. And, uh, and so th- this is really what it comes down to is, is you know, the, uh, my, the presuppositions of my work are pretty simple. Um, we all know more than we think that we know. Um, we base what we do and what we feel on this information. Consciousness attempts to make an explanation for it, and most of the time it succeeds. When it doesn't, or when, uh, or when we find ourselves doing things we don't want to do, or find ourselves not doing things that we do want to do, then that's usually when people call me. Mm-hmm. And, and what I do is I help them by, uh, very specifically um, to have an experience that allows them to process this information uh, in a way that, uh, that causes them not only to perceive all of the information that could affect the situation so that they're not only having an intellectual understanding of it, but a deep understanding of it. And that deep understanding and the feelings that tend to arise from that also have a tendency then to affect behavior. So, um, so from, from that point of view, it's, it's pretty simple. You know, uh, a lot of the stuff that w- that has been, you know, cause look, I, I, we, we use the term hypnosis, and it's really important to understand that hypnosis is just a grab bag of different things. And many of these things um, seem to work for very different reasons. Hypnosis isn't one thing. It's just here's a set of stuff mm-hmm. that Mesmer did and then a few other people did back in the day that all got grouped together because they seem to all have the same sort of weird effects yeah. Even even if they they even if they are a bit of a hodgepodge and a bit of a grab bag, um, because again, you know, um, these people weren't systemic scientific thinkers all that much. You know, Mesmer was mostly um, a stage performer, and uh, you know, and and the one thing that Mesmer mostly did um, was uh, he worked uh, more as a gigolo than. Uh, maybe as <laughs> as a performer. <laughs> okay. 
and, and well, in those days, um, uh, before uh, we we had a, a, an understanding of certain things, um, women were often diagnosed as having unrelieved tension. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was considered uh, problematic for them because it would make them frail and, and uh, prone to the vapors and the faints. And so, uh, and so what would happen is, is that they would go in um, with this uh, rather interesting <laughs> – this rather interesting man who would um, stare at them until he caused them to quiver and shudder and they would release the tension and uh, and then uh, they would be all right and and actually some of these ladies really liked having their tension relieved so they tended to see him on a regular basis <laughs> so you know and they uh, and they pay oh well absolutely they would <laughs> who wouldn't you know um uh, for a nice tension reliever like that i mean there's there's an awful lot of people who have been paying that for for that for a long time mm. uh <laughs> And so it's the world's oldest profession, if I'm not terribly mistaken. Absolutely. But, but if you think about this as being kind of the 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 modern uh, origins of a lot of the stuff that we do in this context, that will give you a pretty good idea of exactly why it's a bit of a hodgepodge and why it's a bit of a shambles. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think that this is why you know the cognitive uh, neuropsychological stuff is really useful to sort of go in and create some working theories for how things might work. Um, understanding that uh, they're just working theories mm-hmm. and then, and then use that to start to make some distinctions about, you know, what does what and where is it useful and how is it useful? And, uh, and so, you know, what we're really doing is, is that we're taking something that maybe started in a place that's a little bit less than serious um, but certainly, you know, Hey, look, you know, what happened with Mesmer was a couple of doctors saw what he was doing and they saw that he was literally just, you know, uh, there were people with, with legitimate, uh, medical conditions and Mesmer suggested that they didn't, shouldn't have those anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and suddenly they didn't. Now it wasn't consistent and it didn't happen all the time, but sometimes it did. And so these doctors decided that they wanted to study what Mesmer was doing, not for the purposes of uh, entertaining uh, uh, ladies with uh, with excessive tension, mm-hmm. uh, but instead for the purposes of of creating some kind of a therapeutic benefit. Now, also remember that you know this is the late uh, 1800s, and uh, and during that time um, there was not a, such a thing as reliable anesthetics. Yeah. Um, and so just even from, from the point of view of using it for, uh, you know, to put somebody into a sleep like state, um, where, uh, they could be operated on, uh, without waking up screaming, that was already something. Yeah. So, you know, so, so they, they, they tried to take it in a more scientific direction, but there has always been kind of the, the kind of the tug of war, between the people who want to use hypnosis primarily in the context of entertainment yep. and then others who want to use hypnosis uh, as, as, you know, kind of for more um, altruistic purposes, let us say. Not, not that being entertained isn't lovely, but, uh, you know, but, but certainly, you know, using it to help someone in a bad situation. Um, and, of course, there's been some arguments about, you know, well, you know, the, the people who do it on stage, they, they create a bad reputation for the rest of us and therefore they don't take us seriously. 
And then, of course, the people on stage are just going, well, that's just because you people, you don't know that uh, we are actually uh, spreading the word about hypnosis. And other people wouldn't know what it was like unless I had people dance with a mop and, uh, and, bark <laughs> like, and, and you know, cluck like chickens. Sure. You know, so, <laughs> so it goes back and forth, but anyways, but I, but I, I do, I do at least hope that, um, one of the things that I bring to it is to, is to attempt to, to start to look at it in a different way than we might have looked at it traditionally, Yeah. um, to start breaking it down to understand why things work the way that they do. And then understanding that if you go in and you help somebody to change the way that they think and feel at a deep level, very often trying to work via the the surface cognitive level like something like cbt Mm -hmm. um that's a lot of hard work because you're trying to change a pre-conscious response using conscious thinking sure and and that's that's essentially at the wrong logical level so where would you say i mean are are there problems or issues that people could have where actually handling it at a, a, a conscious cognitive level is it's the way that actually you, you would go or should a change work be done always at that kind of pre-conscious deeper level well it, it depends on you know you you've, you uh you you deal with the issue where the issue is occurring mm-hmm. um you know so for example we have uh, there's a phrase uh, from the latin that we use when we're discussing logic which is does not follow mm-hmm Okay, this is, you know, this does not, uh, this is a non sequitur, it does not follow. Um, Very often, somebody has a problem because they have malformed logic. You know, so they, they, they are, they they have a, a cognitive issue, they have, they reasoned something once, they forgot what the reasoning was. And then they just essentially they keep you know they, you know it's like uh, it's like walking easterly in order to to head in a westerly direction. Yeah, you know that is a fundamentally flawed strategy. You can walk uh, from now until the end of the world into, in eastward, and you will never head west. I mean, at least north and south. Eventually, you'll hit the poles, and then you then you'll be going in the other, in the other direction. But uh, but as long as as long as you're heading east, you'll never be heading west. And so the pro- the problem there is logic. The problem there is a strategy and the problem there is, you know, what you are doing does not follow this. The thing you are doing does not result in the thing that you uh, want to happen. Mm -hmm. If it's a if it's a question of logic and reason, then sometimes it's about essentially uncovering the logical structure, the thing that we've sort of forgotten about. What mm-hmm. was our reasoning about this thing in the first place? Well, if you uncover it and, and reveal it, some of it's awful silly. Yeah. And we just immediately go, oh, well, of course, that's not right. <laughs> you know, in the moment that that happens, that 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 really kind of changes, changes the world, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, this, this is really um, a, a very powerful intervention uh, to just go in and say, you know, hey, look, this doesn't follow. And, and very often the person will immediately sort things out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, the, but of course, in many cases, like, you know, for example, if somebody comes in with a, with a phobia and maybe, you know, if, if they happen to glance at a spider, uh, maybe they jump up on a table or run out of the room or scream or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, if you ask them the question, that tiny spider you saw, um, is it venomous? Could it kill you? They're going to say, well, it's unlikely. I think most of, you know, most people that I've ever dealt with who deal with um, kind of these irrational phobias understand that it's not rational. 
They understand this, the spider is actually not venomous. It's not going to be a black widow or a brown, brown recluse or something like that. Yeah. And, and so they, they understand that, that what's actually happening here is that they're having some kind of a response and they can't even control it. And they don't know why it's happening. And they're just terrified of these damn things. And can you please help? Well, if that's the case, I can try, you know, I can I try to do what CBT does, which is uh, essentially desensitization process, mm-hmm. you know, where I just keep showing them lots of spiders and making them read books about spiders and eventually movies about spiders until finally, you know, they're, they're in, in the room with a spider in a glass uh, cage and they manage to control their fear. Because they've gotten a lot of practice at doing that cognitively and using their willpower to sort of force themselves not to panic. Um, But on the other hand, if I change it at a pre-conscious level so that they just suddenly aren't terrified of spiders at a deep level, then I don't have to go through six weeks of desensitization training. And when they see a spider, they they, they don't jump up and, and start screaming. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, they, they, you know, some people just can't even imagine that they ever did that. They don't that they did it, but it just doesn't seem like something that they could ever do. So that's, that's, that's the difference between my approach and that. And, and that's, that's, and so that's why I think, you know, again, if you're dealing with a preconscious response, you should deal with it preconsciously. Yeah. If you're dealing with a logical response, you should deal with it logical, logically. If it's rationality, then you should deal with it rationally. Um, you know, like for like. So these ideas of, of dealing with it pre-consciously, uh, as mm-hmm. you would call it, um, there might be, I mean, there might be people out there and that sounds a little bit out there and they might be thinking, well, I mean, how would I do that? How do I deal with something pre-consciously? Are, well, th- are these learnable skills? Um, no, not really. <laughs> um, the The thing is, is that when it comes to changing pre-conscious processing um it's not so much a skill as a way of looking at the world mm-hmm. you know um we often talk about frames you know cognitive frames um and 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 the and, and basically a lot of times it, it has to do with the way that you're representing the world to yourself at a very deep level mm-hmm. um now there are uh, – you can certainly change some of your own representations. Um, that can be a very valuable process. Uh, you know, I mean, for example, uh, one thing that is a strong mediator of fear is how close something is. Um, you know, if, if – if, I mean, just imagine for a moment, if you will, mm-hmm. that, uh, that you were in the room with a tiger. Um, that probably would be a pretty terrifying experience if there wasn't something in between you and the tiger. Sure. Okay. Now, so if the tiger is, is, you know, three feet away, then that's a big issue. You know, a meter away, it's a big issue. But what happens if the tiger is a hundred meters away? You know, if, if, if it's a hundred yards away. Well, now it's very small. It's very far away. And you've got time to you know, get, get somewhere safe before that tiger can get you. Yeah. And therefore that tiger is going to be less scary than it would be if it was right up in your face and you had no time to run anywhere. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Of course. Yeah. Okay. And so the end result is, is that, uh, so if you take, um, an internal representation of something that you're scared of and you push it far away and you make it small and distant and dim, um, you might notice that, the fear reaction 
also uh, is less intense. Okay. Now, on the other hand, if you've got something you really like, if it's distant and far away, if you bring it up close and you make it vivid and, and colorful and bright, well, then suddenly the intensity of the nice feeling that you get from that thing, uh, you may well find that it increases. So this is, um, you know, this is, uh, it's less of a skill and more of just, just an idea that you can use to, to, to help, you know, yourself change um, the way that you feel about something by just, by just changing your mental representation of it. Uh, but what I would say is, is that, you know, if you have a more serious problem, like a, a full-blown phobia or something like yeah. that, that actually is probably a time when you want to talk to somebody and get some facilitation rather than trying to do it yourself. Sure. And those ideas of pushing images away or moving them closer and, and, and essentially sort of shifts in submodalities, um, yes. how would that be dealing with things at a pre-conscious level? Well, the, the, the point is, is that you respond pre-consciously to the stimuli in your environment. Mm -hmm. And so even though you are um, uh, purposefully um, you know, uh, making a change in your representation – the representation is the thing being responded to. And so therefore, if, you know, if, you know, if you're in a, a different environment, then, then you're going to have different responses and, and those are going to be both cognitive and, and preconscious uh, responses. So certainly again, and, and, that's, and that's one of the reasons why, um, even though that's a simple exercise and that's, uh, th that's certainly something that most people can do very easily. Um, this is the reason why facilitation is really useful mm -hmm. because I can make that kind of a process much more profound by putting someone into a very into a specifically altered state of consciousness where they become even more hyper responsive um, to the way that internal imagery changes, the way that internal conceptualization of something changes, the way that a metaphor Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, what something might be like changes, you yeah. know, so, so, uh, so certainly, you know, there are levels at which we can do this, um, you know, and, and, and so that's why, uh, that's why, because uh, otherwise I, if everything was very simple and you could just walk yourself through it step by step, there would be no reason for me to spend 30 years doing what I do. Sure. Because because I could have you know I I could just give people a set of instructions and have them follow through on them yeah um, and sometimes it can be as simple as that let's face it ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the issues that we run into in our lives we don't require assistance in solving and and they eventually uh, either we work them out or they work themselves out is that mm -hmm. a fair thing to say absolutely yeah so so what we are here for as facilitators um, is for the point zero 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 one percent the those very few things that intrude on people's lives and uh and and can't be dealt with easily or you know of course and this is kind of you know because it's so easy to get caught up in this kind of therapeutic mindset hmm. which which is a problem in and of itself uh uh treating you know Thinking as sickness is, is a problem, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, also remember that a lot of the work that I do is actually working with top performers to get better at what they do. You know, so I, I work with athletes. I, I've, you know, uh, uh, one, one um, uh, female weightlifter uh, broke a world record right after a session that I did with her. Um, just because essentially, um, you know, and again, she's a brilliant lady and, and, uh, a keen athlete, but it was just changing the way that she thought about it 
um, allowed her to access her physiology differently, and that allowed her to break a world record. Huh. Well, that that kind of leads me really nicely on to, to something else that I, I'd like to, to talk to you about. I'm wondering whether you could share with us a couple of case studies or a couple of times that you worked with someone that typically therapy hadn't helped that well, traditional models hadn't necessarily done the stuff, but actually they came to see you and they, they achieved something, they achieved a result. Well, uh, you know, essentially that's, that's my career. Um, it's hard to pick out one particular case because I probably have eight or nine cases like that a week, um, yeah. on, on an average week. But, um, the, the, the basic, you know, just, just to kind of step away from the story for a moment and just kind of give the larger frame, mm. um, for a very long time. Um, and this has changed very recently, but for a very long time, uh, the only thing we had was psychoanalysis and whether it was Freudian or Jungian or Rogerian, we had this, um, psychoanalytical idea that uh, a, a therapist and a person would sit down and and the therapist would ask questions um, without providing necessarily specific advice, but they would just ask questions and the, and, and the person would review their situations over and over and over and over again until at some point they would have um, some kind of an epiphany. And then, you know, uh, theoretically that breakthrough would be the thing that would allow them um, to say, okay, well, I, I've got, I've, I've gotten my, you know, the thing that I wanted to have happen. Mm-hmm. Now, the, now the problem with that is that the time scale on that was very often um, in not only in in terms of years, but in terms of decades. Um, it was very common for somebody to to be in therapy for thirty years about something, mm-hmm. and not and not happen to hit on that magical epiphany, whatever that was. Yeah. And the people who were facilitating it were, were you know, very often very caring and compassionate people, uh, but uh, they really didn't necessarily understand what it was that caused these epiphanies to happen when they happen. And therefore, all they could do was just, you know, guide people through a process that was marginally possibly related to them and, and see what happened. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the one thing that happened, uh, of course – uh, more recently is, is that a lot of psychoanalysis has been replaced by more modern methodologies like CBT or even more recently kind of mind, mindfulness-based methodologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and these certainly are more effective. Um, you know, they, they, they do work better. Um, but, you know, the, but there we're talking about uh, months instead of weeks and uh and and basically the 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 kind of stuff that um that traditionally people who do um uh, competent hypnotists not all hypnotists are competent many of them are not but uh competent hypnotist a competent uh neurolinguist um very often um can help somebody uh to get a resolution to an issue um not in terms of uh, years or even in terms of months, but often in terms of weeks and occasionally for some issues, even in terms of a single session. Um, so single sessions are a little bit, uh, you know, we have a tendency to pull towards the single session model for everything in, in, in our field Mm. because we, because, you know, it's just like, well, if we can do it fast, we might as well do it as fast as possible. Um, I think that sometimes we, we pull a little bit too far in that direction 
creating too much of an expectation that all change should be instant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but of course, much change is. And uh, much more of it than, than we would certainly expect by looking at the psychotherapeutic model. Sure. Uh, but, uh, but what we would, what we would also see is that, you know, so for example, mm-hmm. uh, one of my clients was, uh, seeing me around, um, panic attacks and they had, uh, some rather severe anxiety. And so, um, and they'd been on medication for it for some time. Now the, you know, I suggested that, uh, that they, um, start to look at the things that they do prior to doing these panic attacks. And then once they kind of had an understanding of what some of those things might be, I used some hypnosis to help them to do something different prior to what previously would have been, uh, a process that led to, a uh, uh, that led to a, you know an ex- escalation to a panic attack. Mm-hmm. Now, once that happened, uh, once they were essentially um, disconnected from that process, they suddenly stopped having panic attacks. Mm-hmm. I guess they could potentially go back and have them if they did the thing that they used to do, but they don't do that anymore. And the way that I got them to stop doing it, because of course most of it was happening outside of their consciousness, even though I, inter- even though I, we did an examination of it that helped them to become more conscious of what that process might be. Mm-hmm. Um, the real change was was preconscious because it was about changing the way that they react to certain things, so that they had different instinctive reactions than they had prior to seeing me. Mm-hmm. And so, as a result. Suddenly, um, you know, they found themselves um, not doing the things that caused them to have a panic attack. And, uh, you know, hey, that worked. See, very often when I see people, I am the court of last resort. Yep. Um, I very often see people who have already seen people who have already seen people. And finally, somebody refers them to me. And, uh, and so by the time that I see clients, they have a tendency, uh, rather than uh, to worry about something taking a long time or anything of the sort, they're mostly saying, you know what? I'm pretty sure that, that, that I'm stuck like this and that's just the way I will, I will always be. Yep. Um, and, and so, uh, that, and so basically when I, when I engage with them, I, I just tell them, I said, well, you know, that that's fine, but, but I know one thing about you and that is that you are sitting here with me. Now, if you are sitting here with me, it means that you cannot think that this is absolutely pointless because otherwise you just throw money out the window instead of sitting across from me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, therefore, the fact that you are here is more than enough of a buy-in for me um, to help you to get what you need. The only thing that I ask is that you play along. Uh, even, if you, even if you don't fully believe it, I don't care. Just play along with what we do and you'll start to get a result. When you start to get a result, then, then, then we don't have to worry about whether or not you believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, especially since I have a tendency to use uh, hypnosis quite a lot in my work. You know, the moment that I'm sitting down talking with somebody and suddenly it's 40 minutes later and they don't remember anything that happened, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a pretty strong indicator that something weird just happened. Um, <laughs> and so I don't have to worry about proving anything to anybody. Yeah. You know, I just do what I need to do in order to help them to go into a uh, into a very perfectly natural 
but different in terms of the sort of state you go into in, a, in the course of a regular conversation. But they go into they go into a, a certain kinds of neurological states sure. that are more valuable for for doing the kind of work that I do. And when that happens, they they understand that that happened. Yeah. And and that's that's usually again that's more than enough to let people know that something unusual happened, and therefore that raises their expectations. And and then of course you know luckily. The work that I do uh, usually also helps to fulfill those expectations, as well as those expectations helping to f- to make the work more valid. That's. I mean, I think it's 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 interesting, and I, I'm imagining listening to this uh, as someone who maybe hasn't come across hypnosis before, and I think some mm. of these things would sound quite incredible uh, yes. and, and quite out there. Um, and I know for for many models, they talk about you know having empathy and having rapport with a client to help them mm-hmm. facilitate change. You know, the the one thing that I would say is that um, different people need different things. Mm-hmm. Um, my job, as far as I understand it, um, is I am I am the person who has the flexibility. If the if my client came in with the flexibility that they already wanted, then uh, they would have done it. Yep. You know, nobody wants to sit down and pay me to fix a problem that they could have fixed themselves five minutes ago. Sure. Okay. So, so once that comes, you know, once that comes uh, uh, to be the issue, you know, once they've hired me as a consultant um, to help them to transform their thinking or reconnect with, with ways they used to think or whatever it may be, um, then, then one thing that, that automatically is fundamentally true is that uh, at that point, uh, I need to be the person that they need me to be so that they can become the person for whom that change not only is easy, but is absolutely intrinsic and unavoidable. Mm-hmm. You know, very often, uh, my, an old friend of mine, uh, Joe Riggio, um, he says, uh, uh, who, uh, who are you when you're the person who can't have the problem? And I think that that's a really interesting way of thinking about it, you know. And and so, in order for me to help the person to be the person who simply cannot have that problem, mm-hmm. then I have to be the person who who can uh, who can facilitate them through that. If that means that I need to be a bit of a taskmaster, mm-hmm. then then I'm happy to do that if that's what they need. If if that means that I that I need to be uh, I need to really demonstrate empathy and care then I'll do that too. The real trick, and essentially, again, you know, kind of the expertise in doing what, what I do, is to understand what people need yep. and to elicit that um, and, and to calibrate that and then to feed back to them what it is, whatever it is that they need in order to make that, uh, to make that switch and, uh, and to change um, that behavior, whether it's a, a bad for the good or a good for the better or a better for the excellent. Mm-hmm. So this is about having a, a flexibility of approach and giving people and being able to calibrate to give people what they need to have the experience of change. Sure. Are, are there any no-go areas for you in things in in terms of you know I know some people talk about you know regression and you know I'm always looking for the root cause of something and um, are there things that you go well you know look I just don't ascribe to that model I won't do that. There are some things Mesmer used to do. Mm-hmm. That I probably wouldn't do. 
more, <laughs> probably because I, I think I think you know. And now I live in Belgium, and and such things can be legal, but I think you do have to have a license. Sure. So I probably will stay away from some of those things. Uh, ex- uh, no, at least not, not in my professional life. Um, but uh, you know, th- th- see, this is the thing. I I really find that um, that it's. I, I like to leave my options open to do just about anything that I need to do. Mm-hmm. I just have never found that re-traumatization was necessary in order to help uh, one of my clients to recover so far yeah. or, or to help um, somebody you know, to, to change their way of thinking. So I am perfectly open to one day absolutely traumatize the crap out of somebody if I think it will help them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it certainly hasn't showed up yet. Yeah. Uh, you know, but uh, uh, what can I say? You know, the thing is, is that, look, uh, also to be very clear, I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on television. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no I have no medical credentials, real or imagined. And uh, and as such, uh, I do not uh, I do not claim to treat medical issues. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I also sharply disagree about what constitutes a medical issue when it comes to having a kink in your think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's not necessarily something that is a sickness, even though it is often classified as such and often uh, unsuccessfully treated with medication. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it is not my place to, uh, to to pass medical judgments. And if people have medical issues, I send them uh, to proper clinicians um, to deal with those medical issues. Um, so I, I look at the work that I do as being strictly, I don't even think of it as, quote, alternative therapy, although I know many uh, think of hypnosis in that context. Um, I simply think of it as a way of changing thinking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and when you change thinking, it also changes feeling, and that also in turn changes behavior. So, you know, so just to, just to make it very clear, um, I don't treat illnesses. Um, nevertheless, what I, what I would have to say is, and look, you know, it's, it's pretty simple. If somebody comes to me, let's say that there is such a thing for a moment as clinical depression that cannot be, um, managed without medical treatment. Yeah. If somebody comes to me and we have a couple of conversations and as a result, they don't feel so bad anymore, then fine. I didn't cure clinical depression because clinical depression could only be cured with drugs. So let's just say that that they were misdiagnosed. <laughs> okay. Now I've never met a person who was diagnosed that wasn't misdiagnosed um, in time, but uh, I'm willing to believe that that there is somebody who is correctly diagnosed and can only be treated um, with um, SSRIs or similar. <laughs> I, I just don't know who that person is. Here's here's the thing. If there are people out there who are listening and they want to know more, or they are thinking to themselves, "Look, you know, yeah, I would like to discover more about, you know, how you can go about helping someone at, at a pre-conscious level, or helping someone uh, in a more direct, solution-focused manner, and being flexible uh, in the way that we're talking about." You know, mm-hmm. what would you recommend as a good start for them? What books? What trainings? What, how the, how should they embark on that journey? See, and this this is kind of interesting. I I really um, I'll tell you a little, just a very quick story. When I was 12 years old, I was already six foot three 
And, um, and I've got to tell you that I am not a tall person. A tall person is usually sort of stretched out a bit. I am like a normal sized person scaled up. Mm-hmm. So as a result, I'm kind of massive. And, uh, and, and so I actually had a bit of a problem because I was also really crazy strong without ever having worked out or done anything like that. And, uh, and so I, while other kids, uh, wanted to learn how to fight to protect themselves from bullies and such, I was actually, um, a bit afraid to fight because I might accidentally break somebody. Uh, <laughs> so, so the end result is, is that I, I never actually, uh, learned how to fight. And, uh, in that way, at least my, my parents, uh, finally relented and they allowed me to take judo lessons. Uh, but for some reason, when I, when I went to go take these judo lessons, uh, they insisted on pairing me up with a very tiny blonde girl, um, whose, whose face, uh, her pale complexion was always fire engine red for the entire session. And, and I just got so upset watching her, uh, be so huffing and puffing and, and, and burning red that I, I finally dropped out of the judo because I just couldn't stand it to, to see her anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so I, uh, but I, but what I really wanted to learn was karate. And my mother said, no, you'll kill somebody. So, uh, but, but what I did because I was a studious fellow and I liked books and I loved reading is I went to the shop and I found, um, an illustrated guide to karate and uh and so i bought this book and it had all these amazing pictures of karate and i uh taught myself karate from this book now i have to tell you that the karate that i did probably bore no resemblance um to any actual karate of any kind nor to any martial art that would be of any value to anyone in an actual uh fight of any sort Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I did meticulously attempt to reproduce the poses out of the book and came, came away with something that was, uh, that was almost certainly not karate and yet um, certainly bore some resemblance to what was going on in the book. I have a tendency to think about uh, hypnosis as a conversation, and I think that trying to learn how to have a conversation from a book is problematic. Mm-hmm. So my my personal recommendation would be if you want to learn something like neurolinguistics, you know, NLP or hypnosis, um, very often there are things called practitioner groups. Um, and these are people who just get together to practice NLP with one another. I would very strongly recommend um, hooking up with a practitioner group and watching people who are already trained in doing NLP, watching what they do. Get your first experience there, and and that will give you a whole body experience. Again, it's like reading about kissing in a book versus getting kissed. Um, it's much better to just get the kiss, even if your first kiss is terrible. Because it, it's going to be very different from whatever you imagine from reading that book about kissing. You know, uh, or dancing or any other full contact sport. I think that hypnosis and NLP are full contact sports. So go and find the people who know how to do it. Um, if you can't find that, contact 
uh, contact if there's local trainers in your area. See if they do taster evenings. See if they do small presentations. Um, get a, get a, a you know get an idea of what they're doing. Um, see if they're see if they can put you in contact with a practice group. Sometimes uh, some NLP trainers run uh, practice groups for their students, and maybe they'll let you sit in. Um, but anyone worth their salt is happy to demonstrate. You know, and and, and I'd say go 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 have the experience. I think that's such great advice. Um, I really do. Mm. And uh, I know a lot of people who, you know, can read, they read all sorts of stuff and they accumulate lots and lots of knowledge. But hey, guess what? You ask them to demo something and they can't do it. Absolutely. You know, and isn't and, this all about doing it and creating experiences for people? Well, in fact, you know, I, I would even say just to go one step further, the problem is, is that if you, if you pick up bad habits because, you don't really understand something and you try to learn it from a book, um, then you have to unlearn before you can learn. Yeah. And it actually makes things a little bit more difficult than it might have been otherwise if you would have kind of started from the experience and then use that to, under, to, to, you know, to inform the, the, the next study that you do after that. See, because I don't want to mean – I don't mean to say that books are not valuable – what I mean to say is, is that, you know, so for example, a, that book on karate, I'm sure that if I were a practitioner of karate, that book on karate probably had many great distinctions about where to put your feet and how to do what, you know, by watching this really great, you know, Japanese master. Mm-hmm. And so once I have a full body sense of what karate is, then I can certainly take pointers from that book and have it be much more valuable than it would have been to me knowing nothing about the form. And if, if people want to know more about you and the work that you do or want to get in touch with you, um, how best should they do that? Well, the uh, the easiest thing to do is just go over to michaelperezhypnosis.com. It's all one word, michaelperezhypnosis.com. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and once you get there, um, you can, you know, the first session with me is always free uh, because we, we, I like to sit down and talk with people and decide, um, you know, uh, understand what the issue is and, and decide whether we're happy to work together. Uh, but, uh, but certainly, you know, I'd be glad to, I'd be glad to have a sit down and talk, uh, with any of you, if you've got an issue and also I do, um, trainings and that sort of thing. Um, you can also, you know, get in contact with me if you'd like to know the next time that I'm teaching the material. I often do those trainings in the UK, but I know I've got some upcoming trainings going on in, uh, India, possibly one in Thailand pretty soon. So, you know, I'm all over the place. Um, and you know, and you may very well, uh, find yourself, uh, very near a location where I am, or perhaps wanting to go to one of those locations just for a nice vacation. Anyway, why not take it? Either way, it sounds like a glamorous life. Absolutely. Amazing. so, you know, that's, that's the thing. The, the brain is a glamorous thing. I couldn't agree more. And, uh, and just to reassure everyone, all of the links uh, to your website and that information, uh, we will put in the info on the podcast and also on the, uh, the Rapid Change website as well. Fantastic. Um, well, look, I, I've, I've got to thank you for, for uh, going through this with me and uh, for speaking to all the, the listeners at home as well. Um, is there anything that... that, that we haven't covered that actually would be interesting given the idea of rapid change that it actually would be worth uh, chatting through or talking about. Well, you know, the, the one thing that I would say is that, um, you know, there, there's an, um, there's a song, um, that I really liked, uh, uh, from, I think it was like the nineties and uh, I think it was, uh, Alita Adams. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, the song was called The Rhythm of Life. And there was a line from the song that's always stuck in my head uh, because it uses the metaphor of describing, you know, the rhythm of life as being like a Chinese dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she says in another point, she says, the rhythm of life is the force of habit. And I think that's really interesting because if you think about most of our lives, most of us on most days essentially do the same things over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have, we have certain patterns that we run and, and, the days that that are mostly exceptional are, are the days that don't necessarily conform to those patterns. It's when something remarkable or unusual happens, whether it's remarkably good, remarkably bad, or just remarkably remarkable. Um, that's, that's when things stand out to us. Yeah. So, you know, so what I would say is, is that, you know, cause very often people are all about peak moments. You know, I want to make my life better by, uh, you know, by, by just having this amazing experience. But I think that what really happens is, is that the, the stuff that happens to us every day is what sets the baseline for our felt sense of the world. You know, that's what creates our sense of well-being, our sense of satisfaction. Um, and, and, I, and I would say that, that there is a really important unconscious part to that because most of us have a tendency to lose ourselves in the familiar uh, we zone out. We, we're off thinking about other things. We're singing Bohemian Rhapsody in our head, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and so as a result, we lose our sense of the moment. And, uh, but that's fine. You know, it, 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 we, it lets us do even kind of dr- drudgery or rep- repetitious things and still keep ourselves occupied and, and entertained on some level. But I think that if you take a moment to examine that stuff in your life. Um, there are some very basic habits that you could create or add to what you do now. Maybe a few habits that you'd like to change into something else entirely. Um, but that if you change them so that they happen preconsciously and easily every day, then it raises the baseline of your life. So that, you know, if you think about the lowest of the lows and the highest of the highs, those are all relative to the baseline. Mm-hmm. Well, if your baseline is higher, that means that your lows aren't as bad and your highs are better. Now, I think that that's really something that most people don't give attention to because most of us are trying to fix crises. Most of us only really pay attention to this stuff when something is so wrong that it's disrupting our life. And I'd like to say that if you want to make this kind of change, the rhythm of life is the force of habit. And if you change your habits, then you change your life. And, uh, and you can create a much more satisfying, a much more, um, a much more uh, livable life than maybe the one that you have right now. So I, I would suggest that not, don't just think about this in terms of, of problems to fix. Think about this in terms of improvements to make. You know, sometimes uh, we get caught up in the idea of life as revolution, but in fact, life can be evolution. And sometimes it's just about the gradual rising and advancing of a spirit, like a Chinese dragon. really really nice and um yeah i I hope everyone uh listens to your words intently Mm -hmm. um 
so listen thank you so much uh, again it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and I hope uh, everyone at home has enjoyed this as, as much as I have Howard it has been absolutely a pleasure and, uh, and one of these days you know maybe I'd, I'd love to come back on and talk with you some more that would be absolutely great and an invitation I would definitely take you up on wonderful thanks a lot Michael have a great day and uh, and thanks again to everybody who hung out with us uh, we really appreciate you and uh, and I appreciate you uh, putting up with me so thank you I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review you'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page facebook.com forward slash rapid change works And, of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works.